me, me, me. <laughs> Welcome to Kid Tech, the podcast series about the people and companies shaping the kids' digital media sector. Today I'm with David Stevens, who's co-founder of the inclusive children's publisher, Nights Of. Hello, hello. He started uh, Nights Of with Amy Falone. Falone? Falone? Falone. Falone. Um, in October 2017. Didn't it? Um, if I'm correct. Um, and both you and Amy were Scholastic. We were. Uh, Prior to that, uh, yeah, um, we met at Scholastic. Uh, before that, I was Brownback Films and Penguin. I've been around a bit. And so, I mean, you're a, an inclusive children's publisher. Yes. What is that? Um, it, it's a couple of things. It's about how we publish and who we publish. Um, how we publish, it's trying to make the company we're building less homogenous. Um, I think when I jumped from animation from the the studio of Brambag to London and walked into the, the London publishing scene, mm. um, it was beiger than I ever expected. Um, and Amy, in 15 years of children's books, Amy was the first editor of colour I ever had a chance to work with. Right. Um, and that's a long time to go with. Right. And, and I guess because I'd landed in London, um, I thought... The streets, it's it's alive, it's colourful, it's loud, and publishing just wasn't that. Uh, and it wasn't representing what I was seeing outside. And it wasn't it wasn't representing what I had seen coming from animation. Right. Um, right. And I thought, you know, this there's an obvious hole in that it's not being not being met. So, so I want to get into the business model in, in yeah. a little bit, but maybe let's take a step back. And I mean, for people who are listening and who, I suppose, don't know what children's publishing is versus adult publishing or the difference between the two. I mean, how would you describe as was the differences in children's publishing? I mean, obviously not just, <laughs> just obviously not just the audience, but in terms of, of the economics and the business and, and, and I mean, the audience is much shorter. Uh, <laughs> the, I mean, every, for what every book, every one in three books in the UK, uh, every, every third book is a kid's book. Right. Um, which is an interesting dynamic. It just means I mean, that, that seems like a huge amount. It is. is that, I mean, <laughs> because I mean, I mean, how many cookery books, which seem to be everywhere, far lower ratio? I'm guessing. But it, that, that falls into the everything else space. Right, okay, so right, for right. one in three books, it's it, it is a kids book, and that that comes across education as well as fiction, nonfiction, and everything else that you might pick up and in that space, uh, anything that qualifies as being read by a kid. Um, and I guess the biggest difference is it's led by demand, and that demand shifts every three to five years because your audience continuously is, is continuously changing. Right. Um, it's trend-led in, I guess, in a, in a similar way to how publishing is led, but it's it's more based on external media. Right, like right. adult fiction publishing or adult publishing is led by the trends it sets itself. Right, right. But so, so would you, I mean, so it is, is it... Fair to describe children's publishing as then much more marketing-led? Completely. Okay. And, and marketing-led in terms of what we buy in order to feed the market. Like, it, marketing is com- is literally impacting and influencing what commissioners are picking up. Okay, right. Uh, rather than... So, so I mean, it feel, feels like a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Completely. Um, okay. Um, yeah. So, it, so, so, so why, why don't children's publishers be much more deliberate 
with their marketing the to create the margins brands. are too tight. Okay, right. Um, it's, a, it's a numbers game. The, like the technology is the oldest tech in the world. Um, it's also the cheapest, and it, the returns on it aren't huge. Um, I mean, it, it's carved out in brilliant niche growing market where it's seen five years of growth um, in terms of sales, but it's very much a everything needs to be for, for, the, for it to work the P&L needs to be tight right. um, and there's just no room for major marketing spend on launching a new series the marketing spend is you over publish and see what sticks and the one that sticks you then put your weight into three books later so that's why I mean I suppose you see historically at least in the children's publishing space you have got the outliers like the Harry Potter's and everything else, which really drive a huge amount of the industry. Yeah. So is it, is, it, is it that sort of Pareto distribution where you've got a couple of franchises that are, what, I mean, 80, 90, 75% of the... Of 70 to 80% of the market is Harry Potter. In the UK, David Williams, um, Wimpy Kid, Jeff Kinney, um, Rick Reardon, the, the Olympus series. I mean, there's and Sarah J Mass in the YA space. It's, and, and they come and kind of come and go. Um, it used to be Twilight. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, like you see them kind of feeding through um, on on what works, and that consumes and influences everything that works for the rest of publishing. Because we are completely, as a, as an industry, we're pretty reactionary. But but we were. I mean, b- before we came on air, we were talking about the growth in the sector, yeah. and and it seems for the last couple of years that the kids publishing um, sector uh, has been growing or has been fairly stable despite the lack of yeah, and, a Potter or a... In the years where there's no new Harry Potter or there's new, no new Suzanne Collins Hunger Games, right. you, what you see is the... What's been really interesting is that five years of growth has meant the big get bigger, but the space between each one gets wider, and there's more room for new series, new authors. And if publishers... And publishers are smart. It's not if they're smart. It's when they're smart. You can see smart things happening to grow in spaces where if you like this, but you know, if you liked Potter and you know there's not going to be a new book in 2015, then you fill it with something where you can, you can drive readers to. And retail, because publishing is basically retail-led, because we're selling direct to the consumer, because it, it's less of a digital pickup. Um, if you can fill the retail space and have the retail support for a new series that's been growing behind slowly and say, look, this is ready for its breakout moment. And it's, it's just timing. Um, and if that works. And, but, but with, I mean, if the market is, is maintaining stability without any of the new sort of tent poles coming in, does that not imply that there is sort of a lot of growth below the surface? I mean, are, are kids reading more books are retailers selling more kids' books? I mean, outside of the big, yeah, the big um, brands and the big franchises? Are ha- like- definitely, kids are reading more books. Um, it's, it's not in the vast numbers that would imply the market's going to be okay if we suddenly take David Williams out um, in any given year um, or take J.K. Rowling out. Hmm. Um, it's, I mean, kids are reading more books in the UK and Ireland year on year, but it's, it's getting harder and harder to make... Get, gain access to those audiences um, because it's it's a it's a shrinking number of people picking up books, but the ones that are picking them up are reading more of them. And I, I guess this sort of comes back then to why you and Amy founded Nights yep. Off. 
I mean, uh, because the way you're describing the market, it sounds like, I mean, the, the niches are getting bigger. Yeah. Right? And this was an underserved space. And it, it still is an underserved space. Um, from the UK last, in 2017, the number of books that were published by um, UK and American publishers into, this, into the UK market was 1% of non-white characters. Um, 1% out of, what, 11,500 books is not a lot. And that's with any... It's with a um, person of colour as the protagonist. It was 4% of all books that had any person of colour. Which, I mean, outside of how we're building the company and what the inside structure of the company looks like, um, in terms of our output, we've already managed to nearly double up that percent just by producing three books in the last 12 months. I mean, that, that's remarkable. It's insane. I mean, and, and why... I mean, I... I, I Part of me wants to suggest some sort of subconscious racism across the book publishing industry, but I, I, I mean, clearly it's not that. But, but why? I mean, it could be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to call is, everyone out. This but is where we both get in trouble. Yeah. Um, I mean, and certainly it's been implied many times before that there is an, a high level of unconscious bias. There is an uncomfortableness about talking about race. Um, there's also an inability when selling books to reinforce what you're publishing um, because you're, you're selling a book with a person of colour on the front cover it's a harder sell to what we know is the primary retail children's book market who are in the UK and Ireland predominantly white um, they're less likely to pick it up so it makes it um, makes those books niche immediately before they were and they, they by by result, get a smaller amount mm. of marketing push. So, so, so there are no other inclusive um, children's book publishers at, the, um, at all. Or, I mean, are you, I mean, are you literally the very first? We are one of. Um, they're all small. They're all independent. Um, there's no one doing commercial inclusive children's books um, in quite the same way. It's. I, I mean, I, I'm loath to say we're the first because there have been many attempts at this in the past. Um, one of them was bought. Um, one of them was bought by Random House years ago, and has since dissolved into nothing. Um, but it has it, it has come in cycles, and what we're hoping to do is manage to to build a company that is structured by people of color majority, um, so that it has longevity where they can continue. We can all right. continue to make. Um, decisions for the company to go forward. I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking about your point around subconscious bias and, and, and sort of <clears throat> the impact this must have on kids. Completely. Right, I mean, which well, I know that sounds incredibly obvious when I say it out loud now, just <coughs> from listening to you, but I mean, the same criticism has been leveled against sort of Amazon with its Alexa program and how they're thinking about bias when they're, you know, programming interactions with children. And, and now I'm just thinking about the entire... You know, it's, books. It's right, everything I mean, we're taught from the very beginning. Right. Um, it sh- it can and should be questioned, um, and it, it's it's been a really interesting learning curve. Like the company's a year old, mm. and a year in, we're we're having such an incredible reaction and engagement from both sides of that community and a, an engaged reader level who are asking for. And in terms of a traditional book reader in the UK having an incredible response and saying we, we want to bring these to our kids as well as when we opened um, a temporary pop-up shop in Brixton a couple of weeks ago um, we just had families knocking on the door 
to get in and actually see it where they could pick up books and every book they picked up off the shelf off the shelf was representing their kids one woman broke down in tears in the shop because her niece just kept picking up picture books and saying it's me and then another it's me and a third and at that point she was a mess and all i can do is stand in the corner and say i'm sorry here's a tissue Um, we'll make you some coffee and she can sit here for three hours and just read them all and and is it is it just parents presumably teachers see this as tremendously important as well Um, completely I mean with teachers it's a harder sell because they're curriculum led Um, right and they have to adhere to whatever Ofsted and everyone else is telling them to do Mm -hmm. and creativity is becoming a less and less central point of the school school classroom when as you get older it becomes more exam focused so they I mean they're fighting on a um, their own battlefront at the same time school libraries are having constantly um, seeing their um, budgets diminished Um, and in fact about a couple of weeks ago in parliament when the budget was announced um, Philip Hammond announced a conciliary or special fund for books to buy things they might like like books it's like this is a special fund rather than this is an every every year yeah. must happen fund. And um, I, I mean, I, I want to. Um, I mean, I want to get into sort of children's publishing and a little, mm-hmm. a little bit more and, and sort of the business behind it and, and, and what your views are. But <clears throat> speaking from a business perspective, I mean, you know, you you've been running the company now for over a year. Um, what do you know now? What have you learned now that you didn't know before you launched Nights of? <laughs> In, in, in terms of, I suppose, the kids' publishing industry or, or, um, or anything related? What were, the, what were the big revelations? Everything takes longer, and everything <laughs> is more expensive than you ever predict. Um, and I know that's what every startup says about everything, but I think we took it for granted that if we made the product, we could just walk in and sell it to retailers and that people would pick it up immediately. Um, and I think the thing we, we we've learned most over the last six months has been the need to develop relationships with retailers, but also with readers. Like, we spent three and a half months getting books into shelves, or onto shelves, and in front of potential readers. But if readers have never heard of us, in the, or, or heard of the books we're pushing, then the whole, the whole process is more or less nil. I mean, when, when you were pitching investors a year ago, surely some of them were saying, hey, it's 2017... Do children even know what books are anymore? Our dick, our deck was very persuasive and showed the four, four and a half years of growth that the, the industry's had. Right, right. Um, but but it just it, it seems um, such an incongruency. Yeah. When you look at the amount of time being spent on screens and digital devices by kids, I mean more and more, mm-hmm. and and yet you you know you are seeing. Is it the exact opposite behavior, or is this in addition to? Is this? How I do, think. How do you think about? I think it's in addition to. Books have managed to carve themselves out of their traditional space, um, and it depends on what type of family, or you're talking to. Certain um, ethnicities look at reading as an absolute core essential, but they only focus on educationals um, and math testing and. Other sides of it are very much led by creative and imagination, and you know you must read as many David Williams books as you can because that's going to make you an actor. Or and, and it, it varies depending on the reasons, but for the most part, books are the antidote to screen time. Um, and if you can sell that as a constant positive, 
then kids aren't going to run screaming from the room every time they're told to pick up a book. It's just finding the book that they deem relevant to what their interest is. Um, and it's been the same across... Um, what's really interesting at the minute is seeing the, the publishing response to the massive growth in audiobooks. Because... Audiobooks for children or in general? Audiobooks for adults, right? specifically, um, as a response to podcasts. Because um, the podcast market blew up, and audiobooks has more or less seen that same growth side by side in um, this massive movement where people just want to be consuming content but not necessarily looking at a screen. Mm, right. And it's, it's more mobile, and it's, it's more at times more relevant or appropriate to be listening to a podcast on a tube than watching the latest episode of Daredevil. Uh, sure, I mean, <laughs> and we could both talk about Daredevil for some time, I think. But, but I mean, the, but you, the, the audiobook point is an interesting one from a kid's perspective. I mean, are you, like, because, uh, you know, we're, we're definitely seeing sort of more kids listening to things on, you know, devices like Alexa. Yeah. Uh, have you seen any evidence of that? I mean, I guess you're, you're sort of... Uh, um, I mean, the, the, from Inside Nights and KO, it's been a small level of it. But right. in terms of the broader market, absolutely. There's been a, an increase, a slow increase comparatively to adult space right. uh, in terms of buying audiobooks. I think it, it falls into the same category of when it comes to book reading, or when it comes to reading, mm. in inverted commas, um, parents are less likely or less willing to move into the tech space. Right. Like ebooks, if you're under 12, just don't exist. Like ebook sales do not exist on Kindle for anyone under, under 12. It's difficult for illustration purposes. It's still difficult for um, convincing parents to pay, pay for it in the first place. Is that? Do you think that's a real issue? They're, I, they're so used to free content that... Completely. Um, and it, it almost becomes a marketing tool. You'll, you'll put... Excuse me. You'll put cheap versions of things up when um, a series is either looking to build traction for something or you're looking to hit a number one bestseller slot on, so, so, on Amazon. So e-books for children are essentially just a marketing tool Completely. rather than an actual an yeah. actual medium. I mean, it's a small market. It's Comparatively, it's a small market, but it's it's not. And has that, I mean, you sort of talk about, I suppose, the perceived value of, of content from a, from a pricing perspective. What's happening with pricing in children's books? Is that, I mean, what, what, what does a child's book cost? Um, on average, anywhere between, it depends on where you're buying it. If you're buying it in the school through scholastic clubs and fairs, they're usually much cheaper. Um, if you're walking into Waterstones and buying it off the shelf, um, it's at a discount and it's usually the same as an Amazon discount. So it's anywhere from kind of five ninety nine to seven eight ninety nine. dollars um, So under a tenner, Generally, unless you're a hardback David Williams and you, it's the must-have, it's almost the must-have toy of the season, um, and that's kind of it, it. Doesn't really vary too much. It's it's very difficult to get anyone to spend more than five pounds on a book, um, which we we as a market we just have to deal with and uh, and have in the kids space. It's it's a far more expensive in the adult space. Um, Why hasn't David Williams just come and set up his own label and, and starting to publish other? Other authors can't speak for why. <laughs> um, I mean, who says it's off the table? Um, right, right. James Patterson's just done it in the states. He's got an imprint within Simon and Schuster where he's publishing. Um, really interestingly, he's publishing uh, writers of color um, under his imprint. Um, so it's a James Patterson presents whoever the author is, and so his name is in his font at the top, 
um, but it's very clearly not his book. Right. Um, and it's been massively successful in the US, and they're slowly feeding into international markets now. I mean, who's to say that David Williams isn't going to do the same thing in the UK market and launch a David Williams Presents? Um, the problem is... I mean, the problem. David's books haven't travelled... I mean, they're, they're translated. Is it, is it a very sort of UK it is, kind of it's a very thing? It's a very UK-specific, yeah. like UK and Irish-specific sense of humour. It's translated. I don't think it's... Uh, it's not the... It's not that it's not successful. I just don't think it's as phenomenally successful outside of the, the British Isles. Mm. Um, and that's an interesting space in that uh, he's got a production company. He's buying up the options to other books at the minute. So he's developing new content for TV that he can sell elsewhere and using the success and, and that's your model as well in terms of, of, of when you when you sign an author you know you're looking sort of you know oh, to, to take all the rights completely well, right? I mean it, it depends on the deal every every right. everything is different and negotiated differently but certainly with the investor backing that we have and the investor interests that we have uh, we're certainly keen to develop a media spectrum where if we're developing something we can bring it to TV co's and film and merchandising and kind of develop it further and obviously we have a rights team that are selling it in translation constantly and travelling the planet right and you've released you've published two books two so, so far, far. Um, so we're what three months into sales um, so it's Nights and Bikes was the first one it's a 7 to 9 adventure series based on the video game launching early next spring um, by Rex Crowell and Moo Yu um, and that was a Kickstarter funded project um, from the guys, um, they were developers and head developer on um, blah, Little Big Planet and Tearaway, the big Sony PS4 games. Mm. Um, and obviously, Rex won incredible number of awards and BAFTAs and all sorts of things, and launched his solo project, which is Knights and Bikes. Right. Um, so we bought the underlining rights for publishing to it and um, developed it as a almost like a seed marketing plan for the video game in that it's now in shops across the UK and Ireland we're mm. launching in the US early next or late next year right. um, and it just means that the brand of the video game is into a space where like the, the people who were funding the Kickstarter were fa- adult fans yeah. and this is bringing the, the right. fan base down off Kickstarter and into um, into retail spaces where they start to see it and then what's the second book? Uh, the second book was by New York Times bestseller Jason Reynolds, um, and it was a speech he gave um, two years ago to at the unveiling of a statue with the Obamas. Um, and Simon Schuster in the US published it, so we picked up the UK rights. And Jason hasn't really had any traction in the UK before um, as an author, despite sitting on the New York Times bestseller list for 87 so, weeks. So you're, you're a... You're a brand new publisher in the children's space. <clears throat> you're you're just a year old. You have a New York Times bestseller, <laughs> yes, who is signing with you. Yeah. How does that happen? Are you incredibly charming? Are um, both, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, we are both, both incredibly charming. Both you and Amy. I mean, it, and, and, and to be honest, it doesn't exist. Um, when you walk into the office to see the the company we have built, it doesn't exist anywhere else. Um, you don't see the, the the core team is four people. I mean, ultimately we've got about sixty something people working with us. But it's right. when you walk into the office, it's four people, um, and you don't see that concentrated high level of diversity in a hmm. and, and not at the top level down. Um, it just doesn't exist in the rest of 
publishing in the UK or the US. And it was Jason's experience with being published by Simon Schuster in the US and um, people in the UK that he just didn't see it. So when it came to an auction to buy the books, we went up against some of the... In fact, we went up against the largest companies um, in the world in terms of who publish in this space. And lucked out that he had met us, he had seen the company and believes in the the message. Um, You almost be very pleased. A little bit. Yeah, I'm trying not to sound too <laughs> smug, but yeah, I mean it's a big deal. It's a big, but, but boost of confidence. But I suppose I mean more philosophically. I mean, for someone like Jason Reynolds, does he really need? I mean, it's 2018. Does he really need a publisher? Like, I mean, you know, aren't there other platforms for um, him to drive? I mean, I mean, his his audience would be what what sort of age range? His his audience. So the series that we start publishing next year is kind of nine to twelve, right? Um, and as I've said, how do you put words to a nine to twelve year old? Because mm. they're not going to pick up an ebook. Right. So what are the alternative platforms? So it has to be printed by and distributed by somebody, and someone has to put up up the front the cost of the printing and marketing of mm. and making sure it's on a shelf somewhere. So, so I mean, you you don't feel that that kids go through a discovery process, as in. Their, their curiosity to find new books isn't necessarily based on, I'm bored, I want to read a book, what, should, what book should I read? I, I think it's, it, it's more gatekeeper-led. It's, more their, it's, it's either a parent, a guardian, or a bookseller, or a librarian pushing this in front of you. So very different to, let's say, a game or, or, yeah, or it's, some it's, piece of content. Or it's not that you're left in a market space to go and just find the thing on your own. Mm. I think it's far more likely that, even in, in a bookshop, it's curated for you. Mm. Um, you're less likely to just stumble across the thing um, where you can accidentally find a hidden right. gem. Um, are, are, are kids now describing sort of places like Waterstones and bookstores as like an app store for books? Uh, I haven't heard that yet, but you know it's <laughs> it's it's inevitable. Um, but I, I think it, it's actually I don't know if that's in, ever going to happen. Just as I think about it quickly, it's it's the I think the two are so separate mentally mm. that. I actually think they've managed to, or we collectively have managed to differentiate ourselves from the digital space so strongly. And, and, and that's in a very short to medium term space right now mm. for the next five to six years. And, I don't and, think it's going to shift. And you're actually now moving into physical retail. Yes, we are. As, as well, which, I, again, I'm, I, you know, to remind everyone, you guys are, are what, 13 months old? 13 months old. Um, yeah, we're, we're running before we've learned to walk. Um, it was... It, Pure accident. Um, we launched a pop-up space uh, for to celebrate our first birthday, and we thought we'd fill it with books from that one percent report uh, from twenty seventeen. So we'd fill it with the books that rep- are most representative that were published the year previous, as as well as some of the backlist. And we got incredibly lucky. The community in Brixton in London um, came rushing to pick up the books. We sold out in the first weekend and in th- within three days we had sold out and had to restock the entire store and sold out a second time hmm. um, the Brixton market traders went and lobbied the landlord to keep us there hmm. um, a woman as I said a woman came in and cried when she saw her niece just picking up book after book um, that's not us having to hype it I mean we're very good at hyping stuff we're a startup of course we are but we don't have to hype this the demand and the opportunity was was but, real but do you think I mean just just based on sort of how 
kids, I suppose, interact with books, that, that to be a successful children's publisher, you need to own the distribution. Does that help? Absolutely. I, I think, I mean, both Amy and I come from the scholastic background where we have seen the incredible monopoly and united force that Scholastic has when it comes to owning both the retail space in schools across the US as well as in the UK and Ireland and a lot of Europe um, and and fulfilling their own content and being able to fulfill that market themselves mm. um, it's and it, again it's the same thing with what you, what you see with Amazon publishing mm. they can tell exactly the algorithm spills where the most interest is and they start commissioning in those spaces to uh, fulfill a market need and when we're um, well, I mean we're, we're recording this right now at the sort of the very tail end of, of 2018 um, what do you feel are the biggest threats? And I guess opportunities on the horizon for children's publishers. Um, biggest threat is the loss of retail. Um, right. Waterstones, which, which presumably will hit children's publishing harder than regular. I think it'll, it'll hit publishing period incredibly hard. But yes, right. it'll but hit specifically. Yeah, yeah I, I think it'll hit children's books um, harder. And I think we're all and part of the reason why we're looking at building that outreach ourselves to the consumer is because if for whatever reason high street retail failed us uh, we would be stuck with no no access to consumers right now um, we have no no long long term relationship with parents uh, and no access to new parents um, if that makes sense because we don't have a draw like we're, we're and even when we were when I was at bigger companies, it was the same. It's the no one comes to the Penguin office to buy a book. They know the logo, they know the brand, but no one comes to Puffin to buy a book. They go to Waterstones, they go to W. A. Smith, they go to Barnes and Noble. And I think that the biggest scare um, for the next two to three years is how high street retail survives. And it, it's been an interesting Waterstones. Doesn't see doesn't look like it's ever been in a better position, right? right. <laughs> but it's also been sold to a hedge fund, so and there are many questions. Waterstones have just bought foils in the UK, so it's changing the high street space and homogenizing it. The danger is always that it's homogenizing it further, um, and by re- taking out one of the largest independent book chains, uh, it's going to get a, it's it's going to be harder to find space for the kind of book we're looking to publish, and. I mean, have the major children's publishers started to experiment the way that you've been experimenting? Every, I think everyone's trying something. Um, right. That's obviously Scholastic of the clubs and fairs, so they have sure. that school. Well, I mean, that, that's the, the template. Yeah, right? and, and it's everyone's trying different versions of it. Um, I don't know how much on the record I can, and how many confidences I can break by sharing <laughs> what everyone else is doing. But certainly, I, I mean, it's. It's a time when we're all looking to make sure that if the worst was ever to happen, that we have mm. an, an ongoing business model that will work. And, and does this not sort of push you, push everyone, I suppose, more towards, you know, trying to build up real community? I mean, digital community, engaged community with parents and families. Completely. Uh, but there, I mean, how much sophistication around that is in the 
not it's not hugely sophisticated. It's a lot more traditional. I mean, the community engagement is with parents. It's direct male. It's direct single male, right. um, and you you rely a lot on touchstones where kids are going to be. So it's engaging with teachers, teachers unions, teachers conferences. It's with librarians, school librarians, and making sure you're at librarian conferences, which they are rock stars. You just don't know it. Um, they are good fun to hang out with. Um, are, are, I mean, librarians and libraries in 2018, it's, it's, I'm always, when I'm walking down the street and I see them, I'm, I'm surprised they still exist. But, I, I, but is it school, li- school libraries, libraries, libraries across the UK and Ireland? I mean, in Ireland, it's, Ireland's just committed to the biggest spend on building its library services it's ever seen. Um, like they, they've become more than just a focal point for to go pick up your book. It's right. it's a community hub for so much more. And I mean, while they're beginning getting the, the library service in the UK is shrinking, huh. um, other places are investing in it because they see the value and growth in it. And it's more than just it's become a job seeker center or education center. It's become right, right. A, a source of so many community outreach points. But, but I suppose, I mean, when, when, when you and I were growing up, I mean, a library meant a thing. Yeah. yeah I mean, for, like for kids today. But it's still, I mean, it, it, and it's still that same universal touch point when, when we were kids, we were brought to the library with school or with somebody. Mm. And it's the, still the same point. Kids are still brought to the library mm. by either their school or by a parent or, or grandparent, whoever it is who's managing that time and it's 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 our like our role as publishers to try and get in with the gatekeeper who's going to hand sell right or hand hand over that copy of the book and our i mean i suppose the difference really at this point is is you know retail is selling it while a library is just lending it yeah um i mean would you ever consider somehow trying to figure out how to get into the library business um Maybe I mean to be honest, it's inevitable that someone's going to commercialize it. Um, right. I do think it's it's bound to come about. It's more the it. I think things have to get to a dire strait when librarians will accept the commercialization of what it is. Because mm. right now it seems it it continues to feel like one of the last fronts where we have to fight for the freedom of access to information. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very UK-specific problem. As I said, like other countries are investing in the resources, and it's not, it's not as much of a problem. Mm. Um, I mean, there are tales of woe from within the Irish libra- library system because they ex- outsource all of the, the book buying so they don't see indigenous titles represented in Irish libraries, which is a problem in and of itself, mm. but at least they have a book-buying budget. Right. Um, and and what um, I mean, I, I suppose to sort of to, to, to wrap up this session, what are you most enthusiastic about for year two of Nights of more books? Um, <laughs> I'm, I mean, more books because it means we have more chances of success. But also, there is nothing that is comparing to the responses we're getting to just having representative titles on shelves. Right. Um, are, are you expanding into the US or doing that through rights deals? It's rights deals at the minute. Right. Um, we're, we'll, it's something we'll consider at some point, but at the minute we're happy to continue with rights deals and focus on growing the list. Um, and there are certain publishers that we're slowly starting to see partnerships grow out of. Um, but no, absolutely, it's more books for 2018 or 2019, 2020. Um just just because of the response we're getting to actual titles on shelves. 
Um, it's having the impact Amy and I have aimed for from the beginning, um, almost immediately, which is the worst sort of drug. <laughs> <laughs> Successful, do that. Well, David Stevens, co-founder of Knights of, thank you very much for joining the Kit Tech Podcast. Pleasure.